Hello and welcome to this uh, event on how well government evidence served society during the COVID pandemic. Uh, my name is Tom Sass, I'm an Associate Director here at IFG and I lead our work on policy making. Uh, so COVID was widely described as one of the biggest crises the world has faced since World War II, um, but it can feel at the moment, uh, just as we've exited lockdown, uh, like we haven't had an awful amount of space to reflect on our COVID experience. We've leapt straight into a fresh crisis over energy prices, inflation, and indeed geopolitics fueled by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And to the extent that people are looking back at those key months in 2020 and 2021, uh, it's mostly pouring over some pixelated photos uh, of various actual or alleged parties. Um, so this is obviously not ideal. Um, the public inquiry should provide some space for that sort of reflection when it's allowed to begin its work. Uh, it's still due to start that in the spring, um, but that will take a long time to report and it can't, clearly can't do that alone. Um, so we're going to need a broad public discussion. Parliament's going to have a key role in that, but so too will civil society. Uh, so I'm really delighted that we're hosting this uh, launch of this important report produced by Sense About Science, with whom we at IFG have long collaborated uh, on issues uh, including evidence. It's a really fascinating uh, piece of work based on new survey work and a wide range of testimony from people across the UK in many walks of life. And it focuses in particular on this critical question of the role of evidence and how people engaged with it during the pandemic. So how this is going to work, uh, Tracy Brown, director at Sense About Science and author of the report, or one of the authors, is going to kick off by presenting the main findings. Um, we're then going to have responses from Greg Clark, Greg Clark who's just arrived, uh, and Paul Wilson. Um, so to introduce them, Greg is Conservative MP for Tunbridge Wells uh, and chair of the Commons Science and Technology Committee, which along with the Health Committee uh, published its own inquiry into COVID and the handling of COVID last year. Paul is Policy Director at the Federation of Small Business uh, and will be able to tell us all about some of the experiences of many different businesses during the pandemic. Uh, we're then going to have lots of time for dis discussion and questions from you. Uh, those of you watching online can start submitting those questions now. Um, please do keep those questions very short uh, and upvote those questions that you like. Um, those in the room, I'll be asking for hands up and I'll let you know when I'm coming to you. Um, we will also be tweeting the event using the hashtag WhatCounts, um, so please do join in with that as well. But Tracy, over to you. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you also to colleagues at, at Institute for Government um, for hosting this and also for kind of hand-holding us a little bit along the way uh, with your insights into how government really works. Um, the pandemic put three questions to government. What do we need to know? Uh, what do we need to do? And what do we need to tell people? And the answer to the first two was, well, a whole lot more than some first thought, and government quickly realized it. They needed to do a lot and to know a lot. And it's now the subject of lesson learning. Everyone's asking about the supply chains of information, learning about what measures can be put in place, crisis management approaches, how people work together, and so on. But the answer to what do we need to tell people uh, was also a lot more than some thought. And this hasn't been addressed. Far from being a nice thing to do in peacetime, as it's often thought, communicating about evidence and about measures, about what government knows, what might change uh, uh, in what it knows, and so on, is the difference between policies doing harm and being effective. It's vital to a crisis, not a nice add-on to managing a crisis. And it's vital to managing complex problems in the future. So that's why we set up the What Counts inquiry, to push now for that kind of reflection. Sense About Science has spent the last 10 years developing initiatives to increase public engagement with the evidence behind policy. We drafted the principles for the treatment of independent science advice, which are now in the ministerial code. And with colleagues here at the Institute, we developed the transparency of evidence framework uh, that is now reflected in the Treasury Green Book. Throughout the pandemic, we've also experienced at close quarters the frustrations and questions of the communities and sectors we work with all over the UK uh, in their attempts to make sense of evidence. And in fact, at the start of the pandemic, we were Mumsnet's campaign of the month, quite co coincidentally, and you can imagine how um, that turns out. 
in terms of the, the questions being fired. This is from that perspective that we were very concerned that there appeared to be a step backwards from the transparency around evidence in policymaking at precisely the time when people needed it most, that there was a reticence to tell people what was known and what might change. And in short, to an extent, uh, policy became, policy development became a bit of an us and them, that, with the, the us being, you know, frenetic, generating 157 policies in April 2020, 62 in May, uh, 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 around the pandemic. Um, there was an us going on, and then, you know, a them. And the them, though, were being asked to implement extensive changes, take on costs, protect people, and cause harm to people, in fact, by withdrawing services and closing down jobs and so on. Though a lot was being asked of the them, but they were seen as communicating with the them was seen as a, a kind of a pain in the neck thing that you kind of had to do in, on some occasions, I think, but certainly was not central um, to a lot of the thinking. Slogans such as stay at home saves lives, hands face space, <coughs> the rule of six, two meter rule, didn't enable the kind of judgments that people had to make. Um, and we've been talking to people a lot about those judgments for our inquiry. So what we did was we ran a nationwide survey in autumn last year in partnership with NatSend Social Research to find out how the public uh, in the UK interacted with COVID-19 policy evidence. And a report to that is in appendix uh, online um, to the report. It's discussed in section one. We had interviews and submissions from people providing facilities and services around the UK who were faced with decisions about risks and trade-offs in their settings and communities from education to transport, and these are discussed in the report. Interviews with researchers and specialists about how evidence was sought and provided, and an overview of the transparency of evidence which was undertaken with colleagues here at the Institute, and that's also appended. We also had discussions with government advisors, officials and politicians about their experience of the development of the evidence base and the challenges of communicating that throughout the crisis, trying to, in some cases, to find the time and space to find a, a, a website like gov.uk that actually would work for them um, to upload evidence and share material and so on. So we, we talked a lot to that. And three fundamental questions have arisen. Um, and I'm going to focus <clears throat> on these. Does government seek to enable people with the information it provides? Does it have the tools to generate, assimilate, and communicate the evidence in all areas of policy? And what are the value frameworks for weighing up competing risks and making trade-offs? So that's what we have taken attention to. So our findings. First, an obvious one, the COVID-19 pandemic and measures to tackle it brought unprecedented numbers of people into contact with the evidence behind policy. That might seem banal, but it isn't actually a banal point when you think it's the first time ever we've been able to survey at scale what did people make of that experience, of trying to find what they needed to know from government. Their demand for the background to government's decisions, justification for restrictions and new procedures, the data that informed those decisions, statistics that showed whether progress was being made, uh, knowing how much protection uh, measures might offer, those kinds of uh, demands for, for the background uh, produced a more extensive, diverse and sustained interface between society and government around policy evidence than we've ever seen before. The frequency of, sorry, there we go, uh, the frequency of accessing um, government information from our, uh, uh, from our national survey shows also that that interaction was pretty sustained. So it wasn't just that initial burst when everyone was at home and exchanging stuff on WhatsApp. Um, clearly, it wasn't so frenetic after the first six months, but it dropped only from 93% of people accessing information uh, on government rules and guidance from 93% uh, once a week or more to 76%. It's not a huge drop. So it was a pretty sustained level of, in, of opportunity that government had to talk to people. <coughs> Uh, those websites that they sought were also revealed some surprises. The Office of National Statistics and what was then the Public Health England data dashboard surprised us enormously that people were actually, we're talking about the wider population survey here, were um, engaging um, quite considerably with such data sources. 69% of people told us they got information about the pandemic from government briefings, but just 30% considered these useful. Um, should government have provided more or less evidence? The only area where more 
uh, was under 40% was in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And I think that's testament to the data dashboard, perhaps, um, that uh, in most cases, people felt that government should have provided more evidence. Um, certainly, very few people um, said at all that government should have provided less. And this is, the, we're talking about the general population here. But this wasn't just a matter of public consumption of evidence in this general sense of trying to understand what was going on. The crucial point is that people were running services and facilities, big schools, rural bus companies, family crisis centres, fruit packing plants, delivery companies, burial services, football clubs, adoption agencies, cafes, breast cancer screening. They needed to make judgments. People with responsibilities in all sectors found that government's sharing of the evidence it was using was inadequate for making the trade-offs with the other risks they manage. We've characterised the government's communication of evidence as largely authoritarian throughout the report. Simple messages and rules versus perhaps authorita authoritative, and there's other ways of thinking about this, and simple versus complex and so on, but we've used that, um, that picture, which I know was discussed by some people in government. Authorita authoritative approach would involve sharing the evidence base, explaining what is unknown and how decisions might change. And there were, of course, many exceptions across government in the way that people sought to explain and share information. In particular, individuals um, stood out in, in their uh, uh, valiant uh, efforts to make sure that the evidence base came across, particularly notable around vaccination. There were exceptions, but the centralised policymaking and communication in a small group, uh, largely around number 10, was predominantly focused on simple messages and rules. And it appeared initially successful. Compliance was high, and that seemed to uh, uh, reinforce the idea that we should keep it all very simple. But of course, it presented problems when rules had to change and the emphasis shifted. It presented even more problems when it became clear that some government advisors um, couldn't follow those rules too, but uh, that's another story. Um, the awareness of government rules and guidance declined much more than the accessing of information. And there's other uh, evidence that has shown that people's compliance also became more and more difficult for them. So that initial ability to comply perhaps didn't reflect the simplicity of the message, but rather people's willingness to take action uh, in the face of the threat uh, and, and, and to you know, wait until such time as they were able to uh, understand it more. But the, the interesting thing for us is that it initially seemed like that very simple messaging was going well, but of course became very difficult as soon as you had to move away from that, and particularly once we went to that first opening up. And it wasn't just uh, in the wider population that we saw that. Um, people you know, began to find that very difficult to implement through their, um, through their services and facilities. People were unsure about which measures to stop and which to emphasize. Um, if one slogan replaced another, did that mean that the previous one was wrong uh, or was this additional information? And during periods of opening up, many organizations felt uneasy with not knowing the degree to which measures such as masks, distancing, and ventilation provided protection. They wanted a sense of scale of COVID risks compared to other risks and the relative benefits of measures. For example, they wanted to know if masking actually was sort of an order uh, of protection that it, they would take other risks to achieve it. For example, a rural bus driver who's quoted in our report told us about the dilemma of letting a child onto the bus without a mask at an isolated bus stop. Do you leave them alone at that isolated stop to walk along a road without a pavement? Uh, their parents may not have a car to pick them up or may already be at work. Uh, or do, do you let them onto the bus without the mask. Similarly, people were wondering whether two-meter distancing uh, was uh, something that was absolutely cast iron in terms of transmission of the virus, but it would mean that they had to close down their family crisis center. So if we could go to 1.5 or 1.8, it could run it. You know, people needed to have a bit more of a nuance about the evidence and so on. There was very high tolerance, though, for the lack of information initially. Everybody told us that we interviewed, everybody told us that they understood. Uh, but frustration increasingly as the pandemic wore on and the evidence base was still not forthcoming, particularly in these areas. This may have led people to underestimate the reliability of the evidence that government was using. Um, we see here that government should have more evidence about the effects of, uh, of the pandemic and measures to combat it. Um, and in some of these areas, perhaps people didn't realize the extent to which the government um, evidence gathering uh, uh, you know, machine was, was um, in action. Um, and there's also a perceived lack, I think, coming from this of understanding, so believed that the government didn't understand 
um, uh, the, the sort of the nature of different sectors uh, that had to implement the rules and measures. This is people's <coughs> belief uh, about whether the government um, understands the way that uh, uh, households like them and people in their line of work are affected, but also um, people uh, running organisations began to think that government actually doesn't get what it's like trying to communicate with parents and children about a huge change in policy around the school, um, that we can't just have an announcement uh, one afternoon and expect the school to be shut the next day and everyone to understand why. Um, the UK was among top countries in the world for monitoring and sharing key statistics about the cases, hospitalizations in particular, and deaths and vaccinations. Um, that we didn't have very much complaint about from people at all. And in fact, the efforts to share those through new platforms and, and um, the dashboards was, was really welcomed. But transparency about policy evidence and reasoning didn't match that kind of sharing and that kind of interaction with the wider community. Um, we sampled policies against the transparency of evidence framework and found that um, actually the um, vast majority of them, 90%, were set out without any link whatsoever to the evidence base on uh, uh, which they drew. And um, we were really surprised to see that because given the enormous progress that government has made in that kind of practice, better practice over the last five years. Um, and 100% by May uh, were not being linked to the evidence base. Um, Largely, this was because things were being set out in a press release. And I think it's worth thinking about whether policy development bypassed the usual channels um, and that it also seemed to bypass departments um, a lot more. We think there's perhaps something to be looked at here in that the knowledge and capacity um, uh, in departments to understand the impacts of policy and the networks of stakeholders that would be effective and so on uh, perhaps had some uh, bearing on the lack of um, evidence that was being marshaled and, 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 and its application. <clears throat> Governments um, also at this time was expressing great frustrations about public misinformation, and I find this quite ironic, that the Cabinet Office was setting up initiatives to try to combat misinformation and shut it down, uh, chasing down debates on the fringes um, of society, and yet not responding to the huge numbers of people knocking at the door demanding information uh, that were actually on its doorstep and needing help. Um, does government have the tools to actually be answering those? Well, I think a good deal, yes. I mean, the amazing things were set up um, to investigate and understand the kind of questions that people had, particularly um, in the areas of uh, vaccination and treatment, um, and also eventually in testing. However, um, the area of, of other kinds of interventions, it seems less so. Um, we remain to this day a little bit um, uncertain about what, well, rather, rather a lot uncertain about what the different measures uh, uh, might have done and, and all the people that had to implement them also remain uncertain. But by and large, government did have actually a very big evidence base in relation to the kinds of questions that people had, uh, but wasn't really sharing it. So you could argue that people should just use their common sense, right? Um, and that, you know, when faced with these trade-offs and so on, they, and, and having to sort of weigh up risks uh, in, their, in implementing policy, that they should just use their common sense. But actually, no, because what government also didn't share was the framework, the value framework, the ethical framework, how were, how were priorities being set? Uh, what were they seeking to optimise? Uh, was it, you know, just case reduction? Was it case reduction, but hopefully not at the expense of a whole year of education? And so on. There was none of that uh, being shared. So the, without setting out also the purpose of policies, people told us that it was incredibly difficult uh, for them to actually manage the conflicting guidelines that they were being given, often different organisations telling them to do different things, different professional bodies telling them to do different things. Um, and it was very difficult for them to negotiate a lot of that, um, uh, of that conflict. And fear of making those choices uh, and getting them wrong, and liability and litigation and so on. So government didn't set out its values and purpose and without this, it was very difficult to know what people were supposed to achieve. I mean, the established cost-benefit principles of health economics didn't seem to be in play, as we've used qualities in uh, many other parts, such as uh, you know, NHS treatments. Modelling scenarios didn't actually include 
things like the harm done by closing schools, so they could never come up with an optimal strategy or we couldn't see how that might have been weighed, case management, case reduction might have been weighed against other impacts. The Treasury published nothing at all um, throughout the whole period. Social services were faced with conflicting rules for dealing with COVID and also the requirement to provide people with essential care, and this resulted in a postcode of, of outcome, postcode lottery of outcomes. So it wasn't easy, and simple, but people wanted to. And one of the things that came across most strongly for us in all the interviews was just how um, committed people were in every sector to trying to understand what they could do to help people there, the people they employed, the people they served, the facilities they provide, what they could do to, uh, uh, to implement policy, and yet um, how frustrating that experience often was. There are lots of areas of learning about crisis management and managing large-scale policy development, the evidence supply chain, monitoring and so forth that, go that effective government needs, um, and that's going on. I think there's a prior question for government before it looks um, at some of these things, which is to ask itself whether it seeks to enable people, to enable people to weigh risks, use judgment, understand the intention of policy and contribute to policy evidence, or, or are we going to stick with this kind of idea that slogans and messages are what they have when we have a public health issue or any other kind of emergency and hope for the best? So the authoritarian versus the authoritative approach, I, whilst I think it was a challenge and a tussle within government throughout, uh, and many um, uh, people, as I say, did, did very well, SAGE actually applied themselves enormously well to trying to share what evidence they contributed, but remember SAGE was just one part of the evidence, as they've emphasised to us. There was economic evidence, there was policy advice, these things were not being published, um, so everything fell to SAGE to explain uh, the policy outcome, and very frequently they were un unable to do so. But people did try very hard to do what they could. But I think there needs to be an explicit discussion in government <coughs> about whether it seeks to enable people. And if the answer is yes, then there are some things that follow to understand and set out the limits of where an authoritarian approach to responding to a crisis might actually work and be useful and what those limits might be um, about not then applying it over a long period of time. Should be looking, we recommend, to build on the success of platforms such as the data dashboards and the awareness from them and to make gov.uk a much better uh, place to navigate and a tool for those in government who want to share policy material, to take that seriously because officials told our inquiry it was atrocious, but they've also told that to the Institute for Government in previous um, investigations here and to select committees, um, people have raised that before us. So let's learn from those who did try to guide the public through the changing picture. I think it's time we also looked at whether to apply a transparency standard across all areas of policy, and the Tre Treasury and Cabinet Office should have a look at that and at how to ensure full publication of models used in policy. And we should explore a publicly responsive trials unit to build on the What Works initiative um, and to respond in real time as people are experiencing their um, uh, trying to implement policies then we should be in a position to actually hear that from them, the questions they've got, and to consider what might be um, uh, possible to set up as we go. Some things were set up in great ways around the vaccine rollout, for example, the reduction of the, um, of the Pfizer 12-week um, week wait. Um, that was a six-to-one trial that was set <coughs> up um, under pressure, but it happened. And it was, there are fantastic opportunities to actually find these things out in real time if we're listening to people. And to understand better how to communicate uncertainty and equip people for change, to map what is known. And I think ultimately to provide the ethical framework where you can't just look to the evidence and the science to answer questions about the choices that have been made. But I think first of all, government needs to ask whether it does seek to enable the kind of people that we spoke to and we know for the hundred or so that we spoke to, there are many thousands who um, really did their, their best to apply policy, and I think now is the time for us to ask the question, um, what did government communicate and how it might have done it better? Thank you. Tracy, thank you for that and for producing this uh, report. It really captures what an extraordinary period this was and sets out you know, many, many thought-provoking 
questions and uh, suggestions for us to ponder. Greg, I'm going to come to you. Thank you for dashing across Pleasure. to join us. <laughs> um, uh, how far does Tracy's report and all of that that she's set out chime with your own thinking, your committee's work on, on this? Well, it's, um, it's incredibly valuable to, to have such a substantial piece of empirical research to inform what is going to be, I think, for many years now, uh, a, a process of learning lessons uh, from the pandemic. And I mean, a number of things strike me. There isn't such a thing, really, um, as the handling of the pandemic. There were different aspects, of diff you know, certainly different times. There was a dynamic quality. What was acceptable and approved by the public at one point uh, was not at another. Uh, when we talk about scientific advice, uh, we bring together all sorts of different strands from the epidemiology and the, the public health advice uh, to the the research <coughs> towards a vaccine uh, and to testing methodologies, all of which were actually very different. And considering them all to be scientific uh, advice uh, probably uh, certainly does sort of hide more than it uh, reveals. Um, but so I, think, uh, so I think this will be a very rich source uh, for the, the lessons that we need to, uh, to learn. Um, a, a few things that I would say in response to, to the report and what Tracy said. Uh, the first is to agree completely that the, it has really not just kind of whetted, but established, uh, I hope, a, a higher, permanently higher interest on the part of the public uh, in data and scrutiny of uh, scientific advice and the, the policy that it's based uh, on that. The, people are not now content uh, simply to to regard the advice they're given as you know, coming out of a black box in which they, they must trust. They're very keen to, to see the trends. Uh, they're very keen to scrutinize uh, the dynamics uh, of the pandemic and ask questions. And there's a real hunger for, uh, for data. We see this uh, in the, the number of hits that the, the dashboard, uh, for example, got throughout the pandemic. And also, uh, if I can be um, slightly sort of self-referential into the uh, to the attention that was uh, paid uh, to the work of select committees uh, such as ours and, uh, and the Health and Social Care Committee. It hasn't always been the case that hearings of the, the Science and Technology Committee uh, have been uh, streamed, you know, the, the, the main channels on, on t even terrestrial TV have gone live to, for, for hours at a time uh, to, uh, to hearings. But this was the case and it reflected, I think, uh, which is something I think is very encouraging, an interest uh, in, in serious scrutiny and information. Mm. Um, the press conferences, although I was interested in the, in the, the, the figure that uh, people didn't necessarily trust the information that was given out, nevertheless, they were, they were widely viewed. Mm. But I think it exposed some of the constraints that you know, journalists at the press conferences got one question, sometimes they sneaked in uh, another one, but it was pretty much kind of one question uh, per outlet. Uh, in, the, in statements in the House of Commons, um, everyone's seen you get, you get one question um, and then you sit down. So the opportunity for a forum like a select committee in which you have you know, three hours sustained questioning uh, is something that obviously it was our, our duty to, uh, to engage in, but it was very gratifying just how, how much engagement that got with the, uh, with the public. And I hope that will uh, continue. Uh, I think the, the second observation I would make, and, and perhaps it, um, it does suggest sort of tempering slightly some of uh, Tracy's criticisms, not that I don't think they're valid, but the, I think the context was that this was incredibly hard. Uh, especially in the early parts of the pandemic, no one really knew what was going to happen and what we needed to do. Um, and so the processes of policy making that we, we should aspire to, um, and this institute promotes good practice in you know, rooting policy in evidence, having a degree of consultation and, and exposing that evidence to, uh, to scrutiny, you know, deliberating before acting simply weren't uh, available. Um, and 
I might say for the Centre for Science for Traces organisation, but especially for the Institute, you know, there is, I think, a, a, perhaps another area of practice of kind of policy making in an emergency, mm. um, which, in which the rules, I think, perforce are different from those that take place in peacetime, uh, <coughs> as it were. And, but it is very important to learn about them because there will be future emergencies and you will have to operate uh, in ways other than the settled uh, and best ways uh, of taking decisions. And I think it will be uh, important to, uh, to learn that. Uh, and so evidence-based policy being a case in point, uh, at the beginning we have people in this room who were part of the, the decision making. If you don't have that evidence, if it takes the evidence some time to, to gather in and to be analysed, still less peer-reviewed uh, and validated, do you defer taking a decision or do you act a priori uh, on the basis of what you think would be a reasonable response to what you are picking up? And I think you have to do the latter. And indeed, uh, what we said is in, in our inquiry, some of the initial commendable determination to be guided by the science actually did introduce some delays uh, while the scientists were able to collect and analyze data. And some of the early approaches on the continent were less grounded in scientific papers, but were a bit more fleet of foot. Um, and uh, and yeah, the paradox of that is that I think it was done for, for good and high-minded reasons but actually led us to be a bit slower than would otherwise uh, be the case. So I think things were, uh, were hard, but hard situations will arise and it's useful for policymakers uh, and uh, ministers generally to, to be guided uh, uh, throughout that. Um, one of the uh, aspects that Tracy quite rightly points, about, points to is transparency. Um, and we know that the, the work on certain. So my committee, when we first started conducting hearings, we had a we had a concern uh, as to whether we would discover things that were so alarming to which there were no answers that actually it would um, cause could cause panic in the public if if we were exposing the deadliness of the pandemic and and as yet policies that hadn't been taken uh, or even proposed that were sufficient to, to contain it. What were the effects of that? We resolved it very quickly that you know, our duty as a scrutiny committee of parliament is to, uh, to expose the, the evidence. Um, and you know, we drew on, uh, as a committee that scrutinizes science, you know, the, the scientific approach, the scientific method of looking to, to expose and to, uh, and to challenge. And you know, I think that was the right thing. Um, but it, uh, it no doubt, it, I know that it gave people pause for thought. And in particular, the, the publication of, of advice, sage, sage minutes, um, had the, the inherited position was that the, the minutes of SAGE, the uh, scientific advice uh, group in emergencies, which is convened, has been convened in multiple emergencies, the minutes were always published at the end of that emergency, mm. partly for that reason, to give people the space to, to consider information, uh, to give advice without it immediately going into the public domain. We quickly formed the view that we thought it was important for public confidence, not least, to be transparent. Um, and Patrick Vallance, in response to a, an early recommendation that my committee gave that the SAGE minutes be published on the way, as it were, not just at the end, um, was very clear in his agreement with that. And he personally intervened to change the, the protocols of SAGE so that they were published in, uh, in real time. Uh, and I think, that, uh, I think that served as well uh, in the end. Um, other aspects is 
the choice between, I mean, so what Tracy says about, you know, do we trust people's instincts or do we, do we have rules? I mean, the truth is that this building, this institute, in almost everything it looks at, uh, considers what is the essential choice in public policy, is it rules or discretion? Um, whether it's you know, economic policy uh, or whether it's public health, health interventions. You, do, you, uh, do you exercise discretion? Uh, do, you, do you allow more trust or do you have very clear rules? Um, and it's, a, it's not something that will ever have a definitive solution because uh, rules have, uh, have rough consequences that um, uh, can lead to you know, often heartbreaking situations. I look back and think, was it really necessary to apply some of the social distancing rules to things like family funerals, uh, mm. for example? Um, was the, the epidemiological consequences of that so marked that we couldn't have exercised some more discretion there? There are lessons to be learned uh, on that. Um, but we do know that it's, it's not always people's instincts uh, are not always the, uh, the best guide to behavior. Some things are counterintuitive. Uh, I remember uh, right at the beginning uh, of my time in Parliament, um, some people might recall that there was, a, uh, there was a, a spate of anthrax being mailed, especially in the US Congress, but there was a suggestion that it might be here. And someone threw a missile, I think it was a condom, filled with a white powder from the gallery of the uh, public gallery of the House of Commons. And it, Tony Blair was prime minister. It hit him on the shoulder and scattered. And it turned out to be benign. It was talcum powder or something, but you know, there was the suggestion that it might be anthrax. Uh, immediately, uh, the speaker suspended the sitting of the uh, House of Commons, the Prime Minister's questions, said everyone had to, to leave the chamber, evacuated the chamber. You know, it was uh, a human instinct, but experts in this room, greater than I, will say that was probably the, the disastrous thing to do to, if it had been anthrax, to spread it throughout the parliamentary estate and beyond, rather than to, uh, to lock us all in the chamber um, to be decontaminated or whatever. So sometimes, actually, the, the instinctive response may not be right, um, and I think we do have to, uh, have to weigh that uh, up. Uh, in terms of later phases of the uh, pandemic, we went from, from rules that I think were initially inadequate, um, and what we found in our inquiry was that the, the early phase of the pandemic, when we thought that we could almost kind of microscopically control the, the spread of the pandemic by bringing on first this restriction and then after a week or so, the next restriction wasn't up to, to the job. So then we went for a more broad spectrum approach. When we came out of it, we came into a very complex uh, set of, of regional tiers uh, and other rules. They didn't seem to work uh, very well. Um, and uh, what I take from that is it wasn't very clear when we were having differentiated rules, who was, who was in charge of making the rules? Um, I remember asking Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty before the committee at a time when, school, when um, children's sport in clubs um, was, was forbidden, outdoor sport uh, was forbidden, despite the fact that we knew that there was, at that time, no known incidents of, uh, of outdoor transmission of COVID. Why was it the case that sports clubs needed to, uh, to be banned from allowing children to play? And no one could answer it. Um, Patrick said, well, this is kind of below my pay grade. Let me say that, but you know, I, I, that's, that's a more micro detail. Ministers said, well, we follow scientific advice. And it wasn't clear who was actually responsible uh, for giving that advice. And some of this continues to this day. Um, so one of the things that, um, certainly the, the view that I've taken from our evidence sessions on the Science and Technology Committee, uh, is that surface transmission uh, of COVID is very much less a, a risk than airborne 
uh, transmission. Uh, and yet, some of the health and safety guidance uh, on disinfectant, disinfecting surfaces, uh, I went to uh, the job centre of uh, service my constituency. Every time a client came in, they had someone employed who would spray uh, the, the table and the chair uh, and wipe them down before the next person uh, came. We didn't do it before. Um, there's no significant evidence that that is important for COVID now. Uh, and yet there is a person employed to continue to, uh, to do that, uh, some environmental costs mm. as well in terms of the chemicals and things used. We found it impossible as a committee to, uh, to determine who is responsible for standing that advice down. Um, the health and safety executive uh, say it's not them. Uh, the health and security agency say it's, agencies say it's not them. And yet these practices continue. So I think identifying who decision makers are yeah. Uh, yeah. is uh, important. Yeah. Um, so I think lots drawn uh, in uh, Tracy's uh, report. Um, we, through the, the public inquiry uh, and others, I hope we will learn lessons, especially for the, the more difficult circumstances of taking decisions, uh, which is when you don't have the evidence that you might have at some other time. Thank you, Greg. Uh, let me bring Paul in. Um, if I could obviously keep it relatively brief, just because I want to open it up to plenty of questions from the floor as well. But Tracy mentioned many examples there of the sorts of challenges small businesses faced in interpreting this evidence that was, that was coming out of government. I mean, what were the things that you were hearing from your members? Well, I mean, it's been an incredibly challenging time for small businesses, and I must apologise. No uh, panel discussion about COVID is complete without someone with a spluttery cough, but I can reassure <laughs> my fellow panel members I uh, suffered with that a month ago and tested regularly as well. So, yeah, it's been extraordinarily challenging. You know, FSB tries to provide a voice for 5.5 million small businesses and self-employed. A year ago, I was saying we provide a voice for 5.9 million, so that's 400,000 fewer than we had. That shows how difficult it's been. And I think uh, I very much agree with the points that Greg was making about how difficult this has been. And we're incredibly grateful for the, I guess, financial support that was provided by various schemes at the Treasury. The FSB argued hard for furlough, flexible furlough, self-employed income support. Nonetheless, for some small businesses and some self-employed, they fell between the gaps. Now, FSB's been working on a project of our own with Newcastle University, looking at how businesses interpreted COVID-related regulation. And what we quickly found was that you can't disassociate the regulatory change from the associated advice and guidance that's there. And it's important to remember that when I talk about small businesses, the average FSB member is a micro-business, fewer than 10 employees. This isn't a business with a compliance manager um, who can easily cope with you know, the biggest load of regulatory change that they will probably ever have to cope with. Um, Nonetheless, they feel an incredible sense of duty to their employees and to their customers and communities as well. So to the question about you know, how difficult did they find it, I think looking at the safety measures that small businesses had to implement, we know that 35% found it difficult or very difficult to take the actions that they needed to. Now, conversely, of course, that means that 65% didn't, so it's not all bad news, but there's a big chunk who did. And I think one of the things that came out of our research as well was this distinction between what you must do and what you might choose to do was incredibly unclear for small business owners at various times. 22% described it as totally unclear. Add to that the fact that they were worried about enforcement action. So fairly or unfairly, small businesses do worry a lot about regulators mm. and regulatory enforcement action. And when you bring those two things together, a slight lack of clarity about what are the must-dos and a fear about what will happen to do if you don't do enough of the must-dos, that leads to gold plating. You know, overcompliance mm. comes at a cost in terms of worry and it comes at a cost in terms of time and money as well. So I think thinking about how we apply that in the future, of course things are moving at incredible pace, but the value of being super clear on what that minimum standard is in any future regulatory situation I think is incredibly important. And the other thing I'll flag in my initial comments are that a lot of businesses I think had difficulties with customers perhaps who had a different interpretation of what the rules in place were themselves. Um, you know, take last July when actually we're moving out of rules were requirements to wear face masks. Pubs were no longer required to be table service only. But actually, a number of small businesses decided we still want to be table service only for a bit. We still want to have a sign up saying, please, can you wear a mask? And those <clears throat> business owners at times faced what I could only describe as abuse 
from customers who are saying, no, no, you must not wear a mask now. And there was a, I think there was a difficulty in understanding the move from you must doesn't mean that a business who owns the premises can't enforce its own house rules. And FSB had to go really big in our campaigning and our comms and actually you need to respect small businesses' house rules. They're trying to keep you as customers safe. They're trying to keep their employees safe. So, um, so there's some of the issues, but really fascinating report and you know, chiming with what we're finalizing ourselves. Brilliant, thank you, Paul. I'm gonna take questions from the room and then I'll give uh, Tracy a chance to respond to what Greg and Paul have said. So if anyone with a question wants to put their hand up and say uh, who you are and where you're coming from. No one got a, a question yet? Okay, Tracy, while they're thinking, I'll give you a, a chance to respond to what Greg and Paul have just said. Yeah, I, I think really all I want to say is that the initial difficulty was so well reflected in what people said to us. And there was so much empathy. I've never actually talked to so many people being sympathetic to government I mean, in my whole career. Um, there was amazing empathy. Even most people that you probably don't imagine voted for this government, you know, that. Um, there was just a real respect for the position that people as individuals as well found themselves in um, and that came through. I think what happened was the, you know, the, the frustration when things began to move to new phases and I particularly crescendo of that around the tier stuff mm. um, where again it was you know, who, who's answering to this and it makes no sense and um, it, that was incredibly, I think that period was pinpointed by many of the people we spoke to mm. as re really difficult for them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, but I do think that's worth recognising that the, the restraint that was shown at that time, mm. actually it was shown by the press and the opposition at the same time. Mm. I mean, it, it was just, people were very, very respectful of that difficulty. Mm. It's absolutely right that we should be looking for um, what, what to do in a crisis. Mm. You know, but I think there's still good ways and bad ways of mm. doing that. And the idea that there's something quaint <laughs> about sharing the evidence with people, which I, I do think is a view, I know is a view because it's been said to me by people we've interviewed, um, you know, that they were frustrated at running up against that view um, in government, that they wanted to put the effort in. And, and I think it was just sort of false economies of scale, you know, false economies of time where people thought that somehow we could just backfill this afterwards. Um, and maybe they thought the afterwards was going to be next week or something at, at that point. And, um, and, and then realised that if only we had shared a bit more of the reasoning and rationale behind what we were doing, it would make complete sense why we're now changing that or, or why the focus has moved. But what did certainly happen a bit further into the pandemic is people became quite suspicious then. It wasn't so much they didn't trust the information they were given but they started to suspect what the motives were. Who's, who's got government's ear then? If I don't see who's, you know, where this has come from, if I look at the information that appears to be the scientific evidence, and then I see the policy and I can't get across from there to there. And actually, SAGE members were finding themselves really, really pressured by the media to, to bridge that gap. Mm. Most of them didn't. Sometimes they did, and I think <coughs> other colleagues of theirs just rather wish they hadn't, because it was really speculation as to how you got from the science advice to, to the policy that emerged. Mm. But I think the other thing I would say is people were also very tolerant of the fact that, that politics, values, decisions, priorities, a bit of arbitrariness play their role. Mm. It wasn't as though people expected this perfect thing to be read off from yeah. the evidence. It was really just that they wanted to understand where did this come from? Was it a kind of expedient decision-making that had gone on, or was it actually based on something really solid? Can I pick up this issue of the kind of the means of communicating evidence? I think Greg mentioned that his committee hearing sessions were sort of box office, and I was certainly locked in viewing them because they were the only place actually where you could see the people who understood the evidence really being questioned in detail on it. I think you didn't necessarily get that in the, uh, in the daily briefings. You did have the sage minutes, but often they were a kind of minimum necessary level of transparency and it was some somewhat sort of retrospective, sort of retroactive process. Um, what do you think is the right way of actually getting this evidence out during a crisis? You know, that's going to work for the government, but actually is going to work for the public, for small businesses such that they can consume it. Well, I think Sage found it really difficult. They weren't set up for it. And actually, just the very fact of putting... I mean, uh, you know, Greg's already said they, they, they were placed where the minutes... It was a repository for minutes, mm. basically. Um, if you looked at the front pages of some of the subcommittees, you know, there was been nothing on there for two years or something before, you know, in those early months. So 
Um, but they very quickly scrambled. I mean, they did work some late nights to try and get the stuff up. And, and, but it wasn't very... Um, uh, the system wasn't very forgiving for that. So just in practical terms, I think we, the government does not have a system for communicating with people in a crisis. It is not a platform that people can navigate. Even those of us who are a bit wonkish about our understanding of government found it difficult. Right, and, and, and that goes for everyone I've spoken to at this institute, and we've all found it difficult. My goodness, what it must it be like for everybody else? And I'm, I'm just amazed that people found what they did. In fact, a lot of what people found was through Twitter and, and social media, mm. um, you know, and the, the fantastic actuaries and others, and some of the people working at UKHSA and um, ONS who, who took it on themselves to mediate. Mm. And that became the platform. Mm. The, the government's platforms itself. Were so I would actually, I don't normally blame the, blame the means, not the, you know, the content, but mm. actually I think the means were terrible. Mm. Um, and let's not put too much on Sage. There are other types of advice, you know, economic advice and so mm. on that would have been very useful. And the mm. Treasury kept a very low profile mm. in all of that. Paul, you wanted to come back on that? Yeah, just to add to that. So one of the things we asked small businesses about was where they went for their information at various times. And what was, I guess... Maybe slightly surprising was the number of sources of information that each business did tend to go to. You know, the vast majority went to several sources of information. We tend to think businesses just want a single source of the truth, one-stop shop, you know, the go to gov.uk or wherever, but that wasn't the case. And I think they want, that was partly because they wanted reassurance. And it's partly because every small business is markedly different. And, you know, they want something that really speaks to them. So they found, and I would say this, that coming to the FSB was helpful in putting it into the language of small business. But similarly, you know, they wanted to go to their sector-specific regulator, perhaps, to understand what it meant for their particular area of work. And um, I think what that shows is that where possible into the future, whether we're talking about a crisis or whether we're talking about communicating something over a slightly more relaxed timescale, Think about the intermediaries that you need to go through to whom you know, the people you ultimately want to reach will go to for information. So I don't think it's just about where you get the minutes out because you know, from a small business perspective, they're never going <laughs> to go looking for them. It's about what you get out through those intermediaries and how, how early can you engage with them. Let me come to some questions from the room. We had the lady here and then the gentleman at the back. If you could keep them short, please. Yeah, I'm Joe Chataway from the International Public Policy Observatory at UCL. I just wondered whether you thought it would be a useful thing to try and devise a framework to signal the type of evidence that is informing policy and the levels of certainty in that evidence. Would that free up communication? Good question. Uh, my name's Adam Sampson. At the time, I was running a care provider, a large care provider. I now um, represent uh, optometrists for my sins. Um, so I've moved from the social sciences into proper science, which sort of informs my question. Um, you talked about scientific evidence there. I think it's been defined quite narrowly as being hard science evidence rather than social science evidence. And my question was more, less about the evidence that was coming down from government, more about the mechanisms for people like me during the pandemic for giving evidence back to government to inform the refinement of their policy. Yeah. So any ideas and, and comments uh, from Tracy or the panel about how open government was to receiving evidence as well as giving it. Really interesting point. I'm going to take one more question from the, the lady in the middle there. It's actually a comment rather than a question, so I don't know if you want to have a question instead. No, um, Go for it if you're brief. Uh, it's Fiona Lethbridge from the Science Media Centre. I just wanted to um, briefly talk about the thing about where people get hear about the information and just to say that we ran um, briefings with the scientists who'd done the evidence. So not all of the briefings we ran were sage commissioned evidence, but some of them were, and, and, and those press briefings were for the science journalists who got to spend an hour asking detailed questions of the scientists who had carried out that study. And we recently um, published some recommendations from our perspective on um, science and the media based on our experiences during COVID, and one thing we uh, thought could be useful is the kind of separation of communication of scientific evidence from the government department that might have commissioned that. So for example, the REACT study, we ran 20 odd briefings on each of their iterations of their report. That was a science briefing with scientists for the science journalists, not through DH or another government department. And I think we still know from evidence that people tend to have more trust in scientists than in government. So we saw certainly value in journalists and hopefully through them the public hearing direct from the scientists who'd done the evidence gathering. 
Thank you for that. I know it's an incredibly valuable resource for many. Tracy, I'll let you pick up on uh, any of those. Uh, just, just on the first Joe, Joe Chatterway's point about framework, I, I, I think I don't know if the, a framework is right. Uh, was it Joe? Was Joe, did you ask? You asked about that, didn't you? Um, yeah, I don't know if a framework is the right thing to do, but I think anticipating a lot more because government's all about process at the end of the day, and I think places where we can help people put power, you know, give power to the elbow of those in government who will go through the process and fight for the process to get things out. Um, you know, and would still do so in a, you know, to feel enabled to do so during a crisis. Um, that's the thing. So I think everyone sort of took a bit of a back seat and just felt like they couldn't really insist. One place that didn't is the Office for Statistics Regulation um, and ONS. And I think there's a lot to be learned also in the trust world, uh, the trust domain. There's a lot to be learned from having regular information that is published to a timetable and predictably. I think that's very, people say it's very trustworthy because they know it's going to come, come what may. Um, and maybe there are other ways that we can put rules and frameworks and so on in place that regularise what people do in terms of timetable, in terms of you know, formats and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure whether the evidence categorisation would actually work. I've been involved in lots of discussions about that sort of thing that in, in principle sound good and then in practice become really incredibly difficult across such a wide range. But there may be things that could be explored there. And this is a scoping inquiry. This is sort of setting an agenda that we wanted to set with the public's voice and the people's experience um, to explore exactly those kind of things. Um, and maybe that is one that, you know, that, that we should. I just did want to say something about feeding back in. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that... That was the thing. People not only tried to understand the evidence, they actually realised, OK, the government can't be hearing from people like us. And so they started to take it on themselves. Some really brilliant successes. I mean, some people tell the story in here um, about how they actually end up writing the guidance, you know, and got together. I think Bayes eventually kind of got it together to pull together, you know, um, groups of, of you know, well-informed people in sectors to try and come up with things. Um, Transport did really well on that, eventually kind of pulling people in and, um, and then you had kind of other places like wedding celebrants and so on that, you know, got together to kind of produce what worked for them and so on. But I do think there's, along the lines of what Greg was saying about, is there, you know, is there a bad or a good way of doing it in a crisis rather than, you know, on a happy sunny day? Mm. Um, the, the, I think bypassing government departments needs to be looked at. You know, it seems like, I don't think it was just public that government was struggling to communicate with. I think it was with, with government. And it almost seemed like just too much headache to kind of involve everyone and the need to be involved because this is a quick decision. But in actual fact, those, the knowledge that rests in government departments is, is deep and important. And they've, you know, they've had lots of consultations with stakeholders in all sorts of domains. And I feel that's missing when you want people to change lives so profoundly and to cause so much potential damage mm. um, and you know be so responsible for protecting people then you need every bit of information about about that and, and that feedback mechanism um, as much as possible I think that's partly why I was missing Brilliant. Uh, Greg if I could come to you and pick up Adam's point about social versus hard sciences I'm just going to throw in another question sure. from our online mm -hmm. followers or I will get criticized for unfairly not <laughs> including them um, and that is uh, just around the kind of persistent rule breaking that's yeah. been exposed uh, and the extent to which that will make it very difficult for the public to trust advice in a future crisis. What will politicians need to do to rebuild that trust? So I think to Adam's point, I, I agree with what Tracy said. I, I don't think there was much permeability um, from experiences that were being felt on the ground into government and, and into the scientific advisory bodies as well, uh, I would say. And, and actually on the, on the point of as it were, the hard science versus others, our inquiry felt that there was an over-emphasis on modelling and epidemiology, and although, to be fair, Patrick Balance and Chris Whitty wouldn't agree with this, but nevertheless, we thought that there was too little, there should have been representation of people with more experience of the social care sector, for example, as a case in point, um, and uh, from the from the economic perspective, um, it was always asserted that the the Treasury gave economic advice, and that was combined with the advice uh, of Sage. Um, but actually, once we got to the point that Sage minutes were were public, we could see what the advice 
was from the epidemiologists. We never got disclosure of what the economic uh, advice uh, was, and I think that was unsatisfactory. Uh, in terms of the uh, of people's willingness to to abide by rules and uh, now and in, in the future, as I said at the beginning, I think there's a dynamic quality uh, to this, and uh, the truth is that people, I think, do have a a sense of what was required. So the the degree of compliance and seriousness from the outset, I think, surprised people on the upside. People didn't think that we would be, as a society, uh, as as compliant with the rules as we turned out mm. to be, with enthusiasm. And I think that represented a an appreciation of the degree of the threat. So all of this communication uh, of the data uh, and the the evidence, I think people assessed it and thought this is very serious. We need to uh, we need to follow it. Uh, just looking at the debates in Parliament over the the last year, it's been evident, I think, that the the ability to to do that again in circum in epidemiological circumstances, which are which are different from that first wave, is not available. I don't. I think you have to. Uh, to make uh, a different choice, and and so, you know, God forbid, we have to uh, have another circumstance, hopefully not COVID, but um, uh, something else in which there are draconian restrictions. I think the key dimension here is the the perception of the the degree of threat to us. I think that is you know, the, the the determinant of of the acceptance of the rules, I think was, I felt in in pretty strong proportion to the degree of threat that, that we felt. Mm. Paul, uh, briefly, if you would, can I, I, can I just say to yeah. Fiona Fox, I, I should have said that the uh, the Science Media Centre played a heroic role uh, in this, and we had our public sessions, but the briefings that were given to science journalists were uh, of huge value. And, and I think the, you know, the prominence of science journalists now and, uh, and uh, I dare say, the, uh, the reads and the clicks that they get, I think also reflects um, a, a big appetite for, for good science journalism. The Science Media Centre was a big part of uh, promoting that. Thank you for that. It's an important point. Um, Paul, if I could just pick up of those questions with you. I mean, I think there's an interesting point about the, the certainty attached evidence and whether businesses would find that helpful, I suppose, in knowing what to make of some of the things coming out from government. Yeah, uh, and, and again, it's, it's difficult. Different businesses have different attitudes. And we, I mean, we did ask a question, actually, just you know, out of interest, whether businesses preferred flexibility or prescription. Did they want to be given choice over how to implement some broad principles, or did they want to just be told, here's the rules, and you know you can comply? Now, overall, businesses do prefer flexibility, but actually as you go down in size, it becomes a lot more balanced. And with the self-employed community, it's 43% saying I want flexibility, 41% saying I just want certainty. How do you square that circle? Well, I don't think you want to cut off all the flexibility for businesses who would welcome it and might be able to make good choices as a result of it. But I think that's where you need kind of illustrative examples of what compliance looks like. You know, maybe provided by the government, maybe provided by someone who knows that particular sector a bit, a bit better. So I think uh, it's, it, it's nuanced, like <laughs> all of this. Brilliant. And Tracy, final word uh, from you. Tell us, you know, how are you going to take this work forward? Sort of what have you taken from the response so far? What, yeah. can we, what should we look out for? Well, I've got my favourite my favorite recommendations and, and um, I do want us to look at the whole question of the transparency standard across government and applying that and, and also the idea of having a publicly responsive facility for any big areas of policy, emergency or not emergency, actually. I think we need to look at that as people can suggest trials and think about questions that might actually be you know, subject to trials as policies are rolled out, be a fantastic idea, rather than these rather naff pilots um, that are often done, um, which are not what we mean. Um, I, I just, I want to say a nerd thing, and then a slightly political thing, a nerd thing is um, the overemphasis on modelling. I would put it another way, Greg, which is to say there wasn't enough. You know, modelling was narrowly epidemiological and only about reduction in cases and hospital numbers. What about, you know, the optimisation of at what point with closing the schools, have you had all your best effect? 
and now you're not really going to, you're going to make you know, the loss of education worse, but you're not really going to do an awful lot to the pandemic. That was the real problem with modelling. It was just not optimising. And I don't mean we should get into a mega model, but just simply government saying what was it seeking to optimise um, would have been a really helpful thing. And also helpful to transparency too, because we could see then where those trade-offs were being made and evidenced. Um, finally, actually would say my political point is, ultimately it is Parliament that needs to ask these questions. So, you know, we spend a lot of time at Sense About Science telling people that if you want to hold government accountable for the evidence they're using, you go via Parliament, because between elections, that's actually your source of power. <laughs> um, you know, it's very important we have a Parliament that, can, that is equipped to ask good questions. Um, and I think it was fantastic to see that emerge, but I do think there are some questions also for Parliament and for us to get the public to understand how useful Parliament is at pursuing those questions. I think individual MPs also did really well at bringing them to bear, mm. but I think struggled too at trying to get you know, those things through in the usual way of getting an answer from DHSE and so on. So, so I think Parliament is incredibly important in this, um, and Parliament went through a big a kind of self-education process in all of this, and I hope that stays too, because that serves the public well. Mm. Brilliant. Well, that's uh, all we've got time for. Sorry for running five minutes over, but do join us for a drink and a natter on the lobby if you can. Um, thanks very much to everyone for watching online and for the questions you submitted. Thanks to all of you for coming, and thanks very much to a brilliant panel. Thank you.